Hi, this is Kevin Quinley with Quinley Risk Associates, and this is podcast, I think we're up to podcast number 14 of The Claims Coach. This is the podcast that delivers tips, tools, and techniques to help great claim and risk professionals get even better at managing their claims, their time, their resources, and their careers. I've been excited about this particular episode. It's a little bit different because it's uh, not just hearing me talk, but rather I get an opportunity to speak with a a seasoned claim professional, Chantal Roberts. Uh, I've known Chantal, I think, for 10-plus years because we have traveled in the same circles, both being claim geeks, if I can use that uh, Use that term, uh, intersecting okay. through uh, through uh, CPC activities, about which more later. And uh, many others uh, got uh, to notice Chantal this past summer. Uh, her article on insurance coverage and claim issues with regard to the cannabis in- industry was featured as the cover story in the summer 2018 issue of the CPCU Insights, which is the flagship quarterly publication of the CPCU Society. So, Chantal, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd like to start by asking, uh, just I know, you know, a bit about your background, but uh, for those who don't, uh, what is your current role in the claim industry? And in a thumbnail sketch, uh, what do you do each day currently? Well, currently I am a a commercial adjuster, too, uh, which means I have slightly more experience than a claims adjuster, one, I suppose, and um, or at least I beat one up so I could get his (laughs) title. And uh, what I do is receive the claims in um, and then try to apply the outline of what everybody said happened to what the coverages are, and I happen to be working liability claims, strictly liability claims now, so then I would apply what the coverages are from what everybody tells me to what liability is, if it applies to liability, and then issue either the claims checks or the claims denials. So is your focus currently in the uh, liability personal lines, commercial lines, or a blend of both? Uh, commercial okay. right now, yeah. So how long have you been in the claims business? I think I figured it out to where I'm 21 years into the claims business, which seems really odd because you were saying how we've known each other for 10 years. <laughs> and I'm thinking, man, you know, I remember when I just started out in in claims thinking, like, I cannot wait to be, like, that person where you know everything and <laughs> and you know everybody, and all of a sudden, I, I am that person, and I realize I don't know anything, and I don't know everybody, and that is kind of what's fun about claims, well, I is, think, at yeah, least. You're right. It's like peeling the onion, and, and you, never, you never know it all, and I certainly don't, which is uh, one of the... Uh, it can be frustrating, but it's also great because there's always something to, to uh, learn. So let me ask you this. How did somebody who majored in French at Baylor, those are, that's the Baylor Bears, aren't they? Yeah, uh-huh, Baylor Bears. How in Pick the world, how did, in the world does a French major at Baylor get into the insurance claims business? <laughs> uh, let's see. I got fired, and... Um, <laughs> 
No, I I was originally going to be in um, international relations, kind of like a uh, ambassador or whatever, and so I was studying that at Baylor, and I quickly learned as an 18, 19-year-old that I'm way too plain spoken to be in politics. Uh, so I make a much better claims adjuster. Uh, my father was in claims and he said, you've got the personality for it, you know, and I actually have a friend who says, um, I don't know how you do it, but you can tell a person where to go and they will thank you for it later. Uh, and it's simply because I'm so plain spoken and I just think that people would much rather hear it plainly spoken rather than you know, a lot of uh, brouhaha about it. So uh, when I happened to be in between jobs, my dad said, just try it out, see if you like it. And um, I was at Liberty Mutual first three days. I was uh, reading their um, SOP, their standard operating procedures, and I'm like, this is a great job. I don't know why people aren't lining up for this job. So uh, that's how I got into it. Well, it's interesting because uh, – like you, I've, I've never heard anyone say or heard of anyone say that when I was a kid, I said, when I grow up, I want to be a claims adjuster. Um, mm-hmm. Most of us, I think, come into it uh, sort of in a happenstance way. And you either love it or you hate it. And uh, I guess we're, yep. we're both in the ones who were in that uh, former category. So I understand that a lot of your claim experience has been handling files for the London market, and I'm interested in your perspective on any differences you see between handling cases for the London market versus handling claims for, say, domestic U.S. carriers. Are there, are there nuances and differences between the two other than getting a trip to London periodically? <laughs> that is not all as cracked up to be. When I was at my former employer, uh, people would say how jealous they are, and I would tell them that they are more than welcome to go in my place because that is actually a very, very grueling um, day to to go into into London and and market. But there there are a lot of differences. I find that um, in much, I probably am going to shoot myself in the foot, um, the domestic U.S. market tends to judge you on your last report, and uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of, of loyalty in that instance. And I know uh, from personal experience, with the former employer that uh, we had stumbled and fallen a few times and the London market uh, took us off to the side, uh, you know, took us under their wing and said, y'all are about to lose all of your contracts if y'all don't shape up. And I find that the Americans, we're much quicker to uh, judge and so we will drop that contract without so much as as letting the vendor know why that happened. Whereas in London, uh, they've built up a relationship with you, and and they'll take you off to the side and say, you need to shape up or we're going to go find someone else. I I also like the fact that London uh, still kind of goes by principle of the matter, and it it still makes me angry when when we uh, give them defense dollars, give attorneys or plaintiff attorneys defense dollars uh, to settle a claim, rather than rolling the dice. Um, that, that's not to say that I'm I'm all for a scorched earth kind of situation. Uh, I'm not, but on the flip side, I don't think 
that just because they filed suit means that we, you know, pony up $50,000 because we know that that's what we're going to do, ultimately. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So it sounds like that your perception at the risk of me overgeneralizing is that did you find that uh, domestic clients were a little more risk-averse than, than the London clients who were willing to take a firm stand on principle? I think that's true. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because London has been in the insurance market for, uh, since like the 1600s. So they've got, what, 400 years on the Americans uh, doing insurance? And so they're kind of more, yeah, this is just a cycle. This cycle will end, you know, and we'll go over and we'll be in the other cycle. So I think that, that that's a good generalization. Yeah, that's interesting. Their perspective is one of centuries, not decades, uh, right. which uh, may produce its own uh, interesting perspectives. So let's switch gears. As I mentioned, you recently authored the cover story for CPCU Insights regarding insurance casualty and property issues related to the emerging cannabis industry. How did you come to pick that topic, and did you get any good-natured ribbing from friends about your particular choice <laughs> of topic here? <laughs> no, um, not for the particular type, although um, my friends, I, and I mentioned it in the article, um, although I generalized uh, my friends uh, amazingly, and I have no idea why this happened, but um, marijuana gets stolen a lot. And um, so that's what my friends tease me about, of, of all the things. But um, the reason why I picked the topic is that I've been trying to figure out what in the heck I know. And, um, it, again, it comes down to the fact, like, hey, I've been doing this for 20 years. Surely I must know something. And I realized that uh, I handled cannabis claims for the Lloyd's market, and I saw a lot of problems that the owners of the dispensaries were getting into, and that's kind of a passion of mine, where I would like to help the insured get the correct type of insurance coverage, but I don't know necessarily how to do that, and so um, it was it was kind of a way to, to talk about, even to my own peers, to sit there and say, hey, guys, you need to be thinking about X, Y, Z when you're talking to your insurance about cannabis and cannabis coverage because when it rolls down to the claims department, which is where I'm at, I get the bad news or I have the job of telling the insured the bad news of, yeah, that's not covered. And and so that's kind of how um, that story came about, and um, I think you had asked about the issues, Yes, some of the issues that were... Yeah, give give us some examples. You touched on those, and I'd like your expression, rolls down to the claim department. (laughs) I I didn't even think that. No, unintended. (laughs) Freudian slip. So, yeah, Yeah. if you can amplify, give us some examples of insurance issues you you see. Um, You you mentioned stolen uh, cannabis, stolen marijuana emerging from uh, from this growth industry. Should we say? Should we say that it's growing from like a weed? Um, from okay. How many? How many people said to you, Chantal? I haven't read your article yet, 
but it's high on my reading list. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We'll be here all evening. Exactly. I do weddings and bar mitzvahs. <laughs> no, but back to you. Other um, examples. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, seriously, though. Um, the thing that, that um, I actually learned at a CPCU seminar was the whole co-insurance issue. And... Um, it it really opened my eyes, and of course, it's it's not going to happen where the insured's house is going to be completely destroyed. Maybe maybe in California where they're having the fires and everything, where the house is completely destroyed. But if you think about it, um, you could grow six plants, and if you weren't taking um, your marijuana or something to that effect, and you could get up to. $120,000 worth of marijuana as contents. Well, a lot of times that is going to be almost all of your um, uh, content B, you know, your your coverage, uh, actually C, con- uh, coverage C, your contents and personal property coverage. So that doesn't leave any room for your chairs, your TV, uh, an example of my husband, your vinyl record collection, um, yeah. Your pots and pans, your clothes, your bed, none of that. Because you're going to be, as a claims adjuster, paying pennies on the dollar. And that is a rude shock. And when I, when I learned that, I was like, oh, I didn't even think about that. Um, there's that aspect. And then I've been reading about, uh, with the commercial aspect, because marijuana is still federally illegal, they can't have banks because then the banks are going to have their insurance right. pulled okay. from the FDIC. Well, the problem is then everything's cash-based. Where do you put this cash? And there were some insurers who were requiring the insureds to drive around in armored vehicles to drop off their Drug money. I mean, literally, it's drug money. And, um, you know, that's not obvious. So that's not going to get stolen. Um, wow. and as we tighten, and as we tighten security down on the dispensaries, because there happens to be an adjuster who was invited to Nevada to speak about, uh, marijuana, not me personally, but I just know of someone and, that person happened to go, you know, to visit a marijuana dispensary, again, not me, just a friend, and noticed that there was a security guard in the dispensary. Um, so, yeah, this dispensary now is, is nicely protected, but what do you do with the product getting to the dispensary? Okay. Maybe now the thieves hit the, the caravan of marijuana or the caravan of cars. Right. That have to go to the bank. A lot of, so, uh, lot of uh, risk and insurance uh, layers to this uh, issue. It's, uh, absolutely, right. money is going to be a huge issue. Yes, yes. So let's switch gears a little bit in your career. You started at Liberty, uh, as I understand. The the large uh-huh. chunk of your time, though, has been in a TPA, third party claims administrator context. Would that be That's accurate? Right. And so uh-huh. uh, it may be too early to tell. Um, I know you've made a transition over the past year, but. What would you say the biggest difference is between handling claims in, say, a family-owned TPA versus handling claims in one that uh, that isn't family-owned? Um, the, the biggest change, I think, is reminding myself that I'm not in charge. 
uh, and that I don't necessarily have pull with someone who's in charge because uh, while it was my father who owned the prior uh, employer that I that I worked for, right. um, if if he didn't listen to me, uh, or I felt like he didn't listen to me because you know he was seen like a little five year old in pigtails, I could at least go <laughs> to his boss, um, who is mom, and uh, say, uh, "Hey, mommy, uh, daddy's not listening to me, and we need to do X Y Z." And amazingly, that that would work. Um, it's not it's not working here. I've tried it, and um, it's. I don't know why, but uh, I'm going to keep plugging away at it. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's it's just remembering that I am now uh, amongst the, the rank and file, and uh, I can pass information up, but if the managers do something with it, they do something with it, and if they don't, uh, i got to trust that they know more than I do. I imagine it's a mixed bag, and in some ways it's liberating, um, and other times chafing, perhaps. Um, but uh, uh, that's that's interesting. So y- your your claims career is now starting in its third decade. You've been in it for twenty plus years, and so I, I'm interested in getting your perspective in your claims career so far, which I realize is still ongoing. What have you seen as the biggest changes in the field of claims adjusting? I think probably emails. Um, because I have been talking to some of my compatriots about how we actually can't keep up anymore. And I remember being at Liberty Mutual and MetLife working 150 claims. And uh, I have 155 right now. And I literally cannot keep up. Um, I can't keep up with my emails. I can't keep up with my diary. And I'm sitting there looking at it going, why is that? I don't think it's because uh, I'm 20 years older than when I started, uh, so I'm beginning to slow down. If anything, I can speed up because now I know what to do with a file. And and now I can see where a, a plaintiff attorney is trying to maneuver this claim. I, you know, I can see it a mile down the road, and so I can stop it before it gets there, if anything. I I think it's the expectation that everything has to happen immediately. In fact, I had a complaint this morning, excuse me, from a claimant who said uh, that he wants the file, my one of my files, his file, transferred to another adjuster because I'm not responding fast enough to him. And... So I, I bubbled it up to the top of the, the food chain, and I'm like, if y'all want to switch it off to someone else, you can, but uh, I've got a list of 10 things to do today, and he's not on the list. In fact, he's not on the list for tomorrow either, so I, I don't know what to tell you, what to do, boss. You know, I can drop something and, and handle him, or I can go on and, and do my job. I, I, there's just not enough... Of people, and I think you and I've talked about it before, and it goes back to nobody ever says that they want to be a claims adjuster when they when they start off. Um, we've got the brain drain going on, yes, and we can't find any good adjusters who can handle uh, a bunch of these claims. Um, and uh, if I got up on my high horse, I think. I would also talk about the insurance industry in and of itself that um, we're not doing enough to train adjusters. 
um, and I worry about that, and that's right. a whole different podcast. So it sounds and, like email but, is a real challenge. <laughs> you're, there you're talking about the, the volume of email and just keeping mm-hmm. up on the email. It sounds like yeah. a, another theme I hear you t- talking about is that, and maybe this ties in with email, customer consumer expectations about the speed mm-hmm. with which things moving. I mean, I can remember the days when, you know, you, you had to wait till a letter got somewhere, uh, and then exactly. you, you had days to think about your response. Or, or there, then facts came along, and it, it, it sped up things a bit, but you still had some time. Now, do you feel that people are, since email is instantaneous, people's expectations bar, in a sense, has been raised, and they expect instantaneous decisions and replies. Yes, and I'll give you a really good example, and and I find it very alarming. Um, Lemonade is the new uh, WizKid insurer that's out on the market, and they are um, sending advertisements out saying, hey, we can pay your claim in six seconds. Right. And, um, of course, all the adjusters are shuddering and rolling over in their graves. And um, the marketing team, God love them, it sounds great. And the and the insurers are like, woohoo, I'm going to get paid in six seconds. But what the marketing team doesn't realize is, um, yeah, those are only covered claims and clearly covered claims. And as soon as there is some kind of burp in the system, um, it gets kicked out. The claim gets kicked out of the computer program that can pay it in six seconds, and it goes to a live human being who starts asking questions. But meantime, the insured only knows six seconds. Um, another really good example, and this was probably 10 years ago, is um, one of the big domestic companies, I don't remember which one it was, had, um, and, and I'm going to exaggerate, a tornado going through a neighborhood, and there was the cat team um, with a teddy bear with the logo on it, uh, handing that off to the kid with a checkbook and handing the check off to the insured while the tornado is still in the background. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, that just, that doesn't happen in real life. And, um, again, that's the fault of the insurance industry, um, but that is also the result of a very tight market. So um, people have a very skewed sense of of um, how fast things happen, um, and I, I think sometimes our marketing, and I say our as insurers, sure. marketing people um, don't quite get the right message through. Good point. So you've been in claims 20-plus years. What is it about working in claims that you like the most? You know, I really like helping people. Um, it it kind of sounds like I'm not when it takes me days or weeks to, to figure out what's going on with your claim. Um, I also like educating uh, people. I, I try to be very upright or forthright and uh, direct, like I said before, with people and say, look, this is um, these are the issues that you're looking at. Um, I'll run it up the flagpole and see, but I've never seen them come back and say blah, blah, blah. Um, and I like to try to educate the insured saying, um, you know, if you don't want to to get a letter of declination from me in the future, you may want to talk to your agent about XYZ coverage. 
Um, so I really like that aspect. That's uh, great. I guess the other side of the coin is, and you may have touched on this already, what is it about working in claims that you like the least? I would again say it's just the expectation that um, I, I'm i a machine and I can get <laughs> these things through. Um, I could work 14 hours a day, seven days a week, and I still would not be caught up. And um, there's, I can't tell um, either the insureds or the claimants that. I mean, right. you know, you, I mean, that's not that's not good customer service. Um, and uh, there comes a, a point to where you reach that breaking point, and you have to to go to your boss and say, "Boss, I I just I can't do it anymore. Either you've got to hire more people, or I'm going to leave, and you're going to be even in a worse position than you are before." So, um, that's the part that I like the least. And that's a good point. I I see that to a claimant or or a policyholder. They deal with you as if the only file that you have to work on is theirs. And, of course, yeah. it's not. And, of course, you can't use that to them as an excuse. I also see it as a, as a bad faith expert um, uh, analyzing cases because a plaintiff attorney attacking the claim, and, uh, the claim in the claim file tends to approach the case as, as years later as if the adjuster had a caseload of one. And, and, you know, put that claim file under the microscope. And as we probably both know, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect claim file. You can always pick at something. Absolutely. But, um, Absolutely. No, no more than lawyers have a caseload of one. But they, they're, in a, they're in this bubble, this reality distortion field, as if the adjuster, looking back years later, had nothing else to do. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> We've talked about some of the some of the benefits, some of the challenges, some of the good things, and some of the stresses and strains of handling claims adjusting. I, I think we could both agree that handling claims w- with all of its benefits is also a stressful job. So what do you, Chantal, do outside of work to relieve and release and manage that stress? Um, I uh, try to hang out with with friends, and uh, it's real important that you laugh, actually. Um, So you try to watch comedies or, you know, being with your friends and and, um, doing something new. I have read articles about how you stave off depression is by doing something new. And how you, um, the reason why vacation is actually so relaxing and you feel refreshed after a vacation is because you went somewhere new and you experienced new things. So, uh, if you are, uh, even if you're own city and you, you were born and raised there, but you go to, for example, an art museum that you don't normally go to or, um, when you have a vacation, don't necessarily do a staycation where you're uh, watching or binging Netflix. Um, you know, go to that um, uh, geographical society meeting that you've always wanted to go to or whatever. Um, what I did last night, for example, because I just moved to Kansas City, uh, and they've got this great junior college. Um, I've always been interested in Egyptology. They have an Egyptologist on staff. She has a class on um, archaeology in uh, Egypt. So we're studying ancient Egypt and the temples and the 
pyramids and all that kind of stuff. And while, again, that's kind of nerdy, uh, I'm a nerdy kind of person, so (laughs) that's fun for me. So that's what I'm doing for fun. Well, great. So if you break out and walk like an Egyptian, we'll know it's not because you just heard the Bengals song, but because of your or passion. Or smoke marijuana. <laughs> there you go. Well, interesting. So it sounds like you know, change your scene, change your context, do stuff totally unrelated to insurance and claims. And uh, I was going to ask what you know your hobbies and activities outside of the job. You may have touched on that. Any any others that uh, haven't touched on? Uh, well, exercise, of course, is important as well. So uh, my husband and I uh, ride our bikes or our bicycles, um, and uh, I still like to take Red, my dog, to um, the dog park. There's a really nice dog park about half a mile from our house, and um, it has some nice walking uh, paths, and it's even got like a nice little wooded area, so it's almost like you're not in the middle of a city. You're in the middle of a forest, so that's kind of cool, too. That's cool. So, so you've, you've also touched on, you know, how time you could spend 14 hours a day, seven days a week, and still not catch up. So, you know, I've, I've often said that time is the adjuster's scarcest resource. So mm-hmm. do you have any tips or tricks that you've picked up in your years on how claims people can maximize their productivity? It sounds like part of it is, you know, having a balanced life, having a life outside of work, any other thoughts about, you know, how to maximize your productivity as a claims person? Yeah, one of the things that I uh, used to do uh, that I have stopped doing here is I used to have the little alert pop up when I got a new email. Uh, and when I saw that, I would be almost like uh, the dog and up going like squirrel, and I would take <laughs> off, and I would be doing 15 things at once instead of stopping and doing that one thing. So I turned off that alert. So I really don't know when I'm getting an email in. I've got my email always up because I am always emailing. I do find because the uh, insurance and claimants expect immediate answers, uh, the 30-day letters that you have to send pursuant to the DOI requirements, things of that nature, it's easier just to send those via email so the insured will know and the claimant will know immediately what's going on in his file. But um, uh, I don't necessarily check my emails every single minute of the day. Um, I also find that having the to-do list is is wonders, except I have not learned how to not put enough on my to-do list. Like I've got <laughs> ten things today, and I'm probably only going to get to number four. <laughs> but um, I've, but I got, I've got a to-do list. So <laughs> maybe that will help. Well, good. Good. Those are those are some. Maybe turn off turn off the email alerts uh, so that we don't have a Pavlovian kind of response to the interruptions. And I guess you know have a to do list, but you know temper it with realistic expectations about what you can yeah. get done, the best late plans, et cetera, et cetera. Um, right. Those are good tips. So l- l- reflecting on your career, which I realize is still in progress and far from over. What one takeaway or piece of advice would you give to a younger person just starting out in the claims business that you wish you had known umpteen years ago? Um, I actually still, I do give this advice out, and it's not that I wish I would have known it uh, because it, it's the career path that I took. And I would recommend, because of the brain drain, that the newbies 
go to one of the major U.S. carriers and learn how to be an adjuster there. Um, and don't just sit in their niche market because that's one of the also one of the problems with the U.S. market is that you are pigeonholed into just handling, for example, total losses in Arkansas uh, for passenger vehicles, and that's all you know. Uh, and you do that for 20 years, which just uh, that's mind-numbingly boring for me. But some people like that. But point being that you need to know a whole bunch of different um, aspects of the claims because the domestic market uh, tends to abuse their adjusters. Um, and you'll get a whole bunch of files, and you'll be very, very stressed. However, point being that after five years, if you move around in those markets, do the commercial market, do the, the um, personal lines market, do liability, do property, things of that nature, you will be a well-rounded adjuster so that you can leap off into the independent market, which is uh, where I think a lot of the money is, because pretty soon there won't be any adjusters. And uh, Lemonade can only program for, for covered claims. So when you need to have an actual adjuster looking at your file, you're going to be able to demand whatever you want to demand as the salary. And uh, that's the way to go, in my personal opinion. Good point. So it sounds like it's that you're saying start as a generalist, and if you specialize, mm-hmm. defer that till later in, in your career life cycle. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's what I would do. So i got to ask you this. Other than maybe the music group Nickelback, what is your beef with Canada? <laughs> well, what isn't? <laughs> <laughs> What's the deal there? Uh, um, actually, it, it 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 they told me no is what the deal is. Uh-oh. That's the short answer. Um, and and you never tell a redhead no. <laughs> um, you know, uh, honestly, the thing the thing that gets me is. Um, and, and it only goes for some of the provinces. Uh, a couple of the provinces out east are just just wonderful, but it really annoys me that uh, I have let's I, I think I've got like thirty one out of forty five of the um, licenses that you have to have in the United States. And uh, if if let's say Florida, because Florida happens to be one of one of the states, uh, if Florida has a catastrophe. A, an adjuster from Ontario can come down and work claims in Florida because the license is reciprocal. But a Florida adjuster can't go up to Ontario. Their license is not reciprocal. Okay. And I'm like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. Because if you think about it, Kevin, insurance doesn't, the, the, the theory of indemnity doesn't change just because I walked North or right. past a, 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 an invisible, made-up line. You know, the contract is, is still a contract. The insurance contract is the same. I've read them. <laughs> right. You know, the theory of liability is still: Did you owe a duty? Did you breach the duty? Did that duty or did that breach cause damages? It's it's still the same. Whether you're speaking French in Quebec, whether you're in. Um, you know, British Columbia, 
or Washington State. So is the issue the arduousness, the arduousness of their licensing process? There is that, and I get some of that um, because you have to you have to license your company um, as a business entity, you know, so that they would pay taxes. Right. I get that; that makes sense, you know. But why would someone like me, who has 21 years experience, I have a CPCU, which is very, very close to a lot of these tests that they have you take. Um, why would I have to take these tests again um, when they can look at my experience, um, look at CPCU um, and talk to the CPCU people um, and just realize that I'm, I'm not a fly-by-night adjuster, I guess. Well, with that, I want special treatment. <laughs> with that fly-by-night uh, metaphor, as we, as we come in for landing here in our conversation, I'd like to hear you finish this statement. If I didn't pursue a claims career, I likely would have worked as a fill-in-the-blank. Probably cat wrangler, because that is actually what a claims adjuster does. Herding cats? <laughs> we just, yeah, we just herd cats all day long. <laughs> I would probably be a cat herder, a cat dude rancher or something like that. There you go. Well, that's, that's a specialization for sure. Uh, yep. So for those who would like to follow up and contact you for further information or reach out, what would be the best way to do that? Um, you could, of course, send me an email and know that I'll get back to you about three years from now. Um, your email, email address? Which What would be the best email address to use? Um, probably my uh, personal one, and that is cmroberts, R-O-B-E-R-T-S, 72 at gmail.com. Great. Great. Well, Chantal, we really thank you for your time uh, today. I'm sure we could have used a lot more, a lot more of it, but we know that work beckons. Um, and so uh, for those listening, if you like the content here, please subscribe to the Claims Coach podcast on iTunes. And if you like it, leave a review. And for more information on Quinley Risk Associates and my menu of services, please visit me on the web at www claimscoach.com or you can connect with me on Twitter at claimscoach that's one word claimscoach I'm also on LinkedIn but thanks for listening and be sure to check back for future claims and risk management resources and podcasts from Quinley Risk Associates